Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a podcast series that we're calling Living Water, where we're looking at old stories in a new way. And water is taking us some surprising places and giving us some amazing conclusions. We're going to begin this episode with the third chapter of John, and this story is very different from most of the others. Usually, Jesus is in the company of ordinary people or poor people, but this is an extraordinary encounter. Let's read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, but no one can do these signs you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus. This story is different because Nicodemus is a rich guy, and we know he's a wealthy man because of what happens in John 19. Uh, This is the story of the death and burial and then eventual resurrection of Jesus. But upon Jesus' burial, Nicodemus shows up with a hundred pounds of perfume, which is only something a rich guy could do. And the Talmud, which is a sacred series of rabbinic debates and commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures that would be written between the second and fifth centuries and considered holy to to Jewish people today, the Talmud would remember that Nicodemus was entrusted with supplying water to the pilgrims arriving in Jerusalem for the festival. So there you go. There's water again. But there'll be more water in this story later. So first, Nicodemus is a rich guy. That makes it different. Second, he's a Pharisee. Now, when it comes to Pharisees, forget the pejorative, right? They weren't always the enemies of Jesus. And quite frankly, the Pharisees were the best and brightest of their community, spending their lives in obedience to every aspect of the law. I'll explain. For those Hebrews living in the world of Jesus, keeping the law was prayer. It was that important to them. It's kind of neat to think of God that way, to think that God cares what you eat or what you wear or what you're thinking every day. However, you could say that by the first century, this devotion could be called a confusion of means with ends, taking what had been maybe guiding principles of life and codifying each and every activity. In short, the Ten Commandments had become 613 commandments, and someone had to keep it all straight. A good example is what they would do with the Sabbath. I mean, as the day of rest became seen as another day of keeping the sacred law. Here here are a couple examples. Exodus 16.29 says that no one should leave his house on the Sabbath, which by the time you get to the world of Jesus was interpreted to mean about a thousand yards or so away from the front door. And so a few years ago, and on a walk with a companion in the Galilee, I noticed a wire strung along poles around the periphery of a village. And while it looked like an electric wire, it was actually extending the floor plan of each house so that they could actually walk around on a Saturday. You needed Pharisees to help you with this kind of stuff, to keep you square with the Lord. This is how 
this is how they would please God. Of course, my favorite example is, is the second, is the Sabbath elevators in Jerusalem to this day. It's easy to get caught in a Sabbath elevator. These just ride up and down from floor to floor to floor to floor, nonstop on the Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening, avoiding the igniting of fire, which is a prohibition of, of the Sabbath or considered work. I, I got stuck on one elevator one time, so it was so slow that they had a chair in the back for you just to sit down and wait until you eventually reach your destination. So let's recap what we know so far about this conversation. First, he was a rich guy. Second, he was a Pharisee. And third, Nicodemus was important. Now, we're told in John chapter 3, he was a ruler or archon, which is to say he was a member of the Sanhedrin, sort of a Supreme Court charged, among other things, with examining false prophets. This may give us a clue as to why he'd come at night. I mean, it probably was a caution for himself and for Jesus not to draw any undue attention, or possibly they wanted the quiet so that they could think. And in their conversation at night, right, this rich ruler Pharisee, in their conversation, we see a contrast between the minutia of Pharisees and the keeping every, every stroke and tittle of the law and Jesus teaching them how to think. It's very different. I've got my own story. We have a young church and there are lots of weddings, so a great joy of mine is premarital counseling. And I try to teach married couples how to think about marriage, how to, how to be married, not simply know the rules of marriage. I did have a young couple uh, come to me. They were going to another counselor and they had a three-ring binder just full of pages and pages of do's and don'ts so that they could look them up on the handy. I'm not sure a marriage will survive if you've got to look up uh, leaving the toilet seat down. That you, you're supposed to know that kind of stuff, right? And so Jesus, and as opposed to following the 613 commandments, really teaches us how to love God and to love each other to the point that we're in relationship day by day by day with God. So in this conversation that we see with Nicodemus is a pattern that you'll see again and again in the Gospels. Someone asks Jesus a question, and then Jesus says something different, and then this is misunderstood. And then Jesus says something even more wild with a discourse to explain. Now, the same is here in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is just simply impressed with the signs and the wonders uh, coming from Jesus. And Jesus responds that these are only important in that they lead to inner change. In other words, don't confuse means with ends. And what is that inner change? Well, Jesus calls it born again. Now, for those of us growing up in the South, born again can be a badge, or born again can be a phrase, born again can be an indicator that you're a Christian. But born again, in this sense, becomes our ability to see and to live within the kingdom of God, which means that heaven begins now, and you don't even have to wait. Born again means life right now with heaven in it, as opposed to waiting for the pearly gates. Born again means being changed in a way that allows us to start over. And Jesus uses two image, water, there's water again, and spirit, water, precious and rare. You can't make it. Only God can make it. You can only pray for it. You can only hope for it. In a world with very little water, it's both precious and holy. And in spirit, spirit, God's spirit, the power to discern, to see, to understand. And how's this one? The power even to apologize
And then finally, Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I like to remind folks in this podcast of something that we call the principle of repetition, which is a fancy way of saying that stories will repeat themselves over time. This is remarkable given that the Bible isn't a book, but rather a library of books. It's written by many people over many centuries, which means that if God did something once, God will do it again. Better yet, if God did something for them, God will do something for me. And as a teacher of of Israel, he should have known these stories over and over, of starting over stories, of born-again stories. Exodus surely comes to mind as a nation of slaves are reborn into a mighty nation of God's people. Or how about Jacob's dream, Uh, a man on the run from a brother in a murderous rage. He has a dream and sees angels descending and ascending on a ladder and representing the Jacob that could be or will be, but not yet. He's learning and he's learning that he's not perfect, but yes, with God's help, he can grow. That's born again. Or David, the mighty king who murders a man and takes his wife. And upon learning that even kings must be accountable to God, he finally falls on his knees and writes this song. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's Psalm 51. And it's a psalm about being born again, again, and again. Or even in the garden, as Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit that was promised would be the sentence of death, but they don't die after all. And although life is hard and consequences are real, the Lord God makes garments of skins for them both. God makes the clothes for them, which is grace in the garden. And this is a story of starting over again and again and again, born again and again, all through this library that we call the Bible. But for my money, the best story to parallel that of Nicodemus and being born again is a story found in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of a general who had everything he ever wanted except one thing, and that's his health. His name was Naaman. He came from a neighboring country called Aram or Syria. He had gold and silver and armies and wealth, and yet he had a terrible leprosy that left him in total despair. In those days, they would enslave the people that they conquered, and he had an Israelite slave who suggested to him that he write a letter to the Israelite king and ask him, if he could speak to the prophet about being healed. So he writes the letter and the king of Israel gets it, but it's name in the Syrian and he figures that this is just a pretext to an invasion. The king has a come apart. He can't, he can't heal name and he knows he can. And just when he's about to be at a point of despair, the prophet Elisha steps in. Send him to me, Elisha says in effect, and Naaman does. Naaman goes to the house of the prophet with with his retinue and his banners and his trumpets and his soldiers and chest of gold, and Elisha sends a servant out to meet him. The prophet doesn't even come out. The, The servant simply says, go, wash, wash in the river Jordan seven times, and you will be made clean. And at this point, Naaman is incensed. First of all, The prophet doesn't even come outside. Secondly, it's not even hard. Let's pick up the story at 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with the 12th verse. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? And the answer is yes. Mesopotamia means between the rivers, and they've got water over there. The world of the Israelites, not very much water at all, and the Jordan River looks like a creek. I'll read it again. 
Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. His flesh was restored. Naaman was restored like the flesh of a young boy by water and spirit, and he was born again. I said this a minute ago, growing up in the South, born again can be a badge. It can be a a tag to let you know that you're a Christian or or a certain kind of Christian. But most people, when they think of born again, think of it as a one-off, as a born again Christian, something that happens for you one time. Friends, we can wash in these waters again and again and again. We too can start over again and again and again. We can go home again and again and again. And I'll say this, we can say we're sorry again and again and again, and we can be born again. So that's our lesson for today, and here's a question. How can we start over? Or how's this? What do our authentic apologies look like? Thanks, everybody. Catch you next time. I'm John Rutherford, and my journey to giving started at a very early age where my parents would hand me a dollar as the offering was going by. And over time, I noticed the offering a couple rows ahead, and I would turn to them with my hand out, uh, looking for them to give me the dollar. I didn't really know what this meant, but until I started making my own money, I realized that my parents instilled in me a spiritual habit. Not That habit is constantly under threat from financial pulls of mortgages and bills and endless trips to Home Depot. But me and many people my age are just trying to figure out how to save and how to budget. We constantly fall victim to the 10% trap of if I don't give enough money, if I don't give 10%, then maybe uh, it's not enough. Or if I give less than 10%, my church might think that I'm cheap or that I'm you know, not prioritizing my faith. Or, or maybe I'll start uh, giving when my budget allows for it. It reminds me of the story in Mark where the widow gives her last two coins, and receives Jesus' praise. Now, this story tends to make people nervous because it feels like Jesus rewarded the, the woman who gave up everything, who gave their last dollar. But to me, the story is not really about percentages or amounts to give, but it's about the habit of giving. We know that habits often tend to be involuntary and that No rational person would probably give away their last two dollars, especially if they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. But if you have the habit of giving, you give in good times and in bad, and not just giving when you have excess. We give because we want to support the church, we want to support our community, we want to support the next generation of Christians. What's nice about St. Luke's is you don't have to look far to see where the money is going. We have so many great things going for this church great youth programs, we have great foundation groups, Bible studies, uh, breakfast between services, and we even have a new satellite church in Crestline Park. We truly have the opportunity to be part of something bigger. We know that when we pledge our dollars to St. Luke's that they're going to really plan something great for this community and this church. We would love for you to consider 
pledging to St. Luke's this fall. That way we can grow our St. Luke's family. So who's ready? We are. Thanks be to God.